Welcome to the Indianola First Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Our prayer is that this message will inspire you, encourage you, and launch you into life-changing action. This morning, we're going to continue in our series entitled Masterclass, and it's a closer look at one of the greatest teachings by the greatest teacher who ever lived, Jesus Christ. This teaching of Jesus can be found in Matthew chapter 5 through 6. And, and I got to tell you, this week, it's, it's been a, a difficult week, especially for the Burton family. Mike and Valerie's daughter, Chad's sister, Amber, was murdered last week on the south side of Des Moines, presumably over a dispute about a lawnmower. Some of you heard about that in the news. And we've been praying for them as a church. But her service was yesterday, and it's it's the second one in a month and a half that I've done where murder was the cause of death. Never did one prior to that. I planned this sermon almost two months ago, and just by chance, it's on the subject of anger and murder. And what you are to do with those feelings of anger, because we've all had them. I mean, really, what's going on with people? So much hate. So much bitterness. It's like they're volcanoes ready to erupt on anyone whom they choose to be a target. It's nuts. And it's the result of the spirit of the Antichrist at work, really. It's the beginning of birth pangs. The the Bible tells us that there will be an increase in natural disasters. There will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be incurable diseases that take out huge portions of our population. And it will be a time of perplexity. Mankind will become perplexed in how to deal with it all. No one will have the answers to fix the problems. I think we're pretty much there. It's the spirit of the Antichrist at work, and it's preparation. He's preparing the arrival of the Antichrist himself. Because he will appear and will have amazing answers to solve these horrific problems that, we'll, that we've, we've created, and it will become very easy for him to get people to pledge their allegiance to him. We have to guard ourselves, church, from, from getting so caught up in everything that we no longer are busy about the Father's business. That's what we're called to do. We are called to be light in this dark world until Jesus comes back and snatches us out of here, right? We sang about it this morning, the meeting in the air, right? Highly involved we should be in every area of society, but not so caught into it, caught up in it, that caught up in the world, but not so far caught up into it that we don't remember or we forget that we're supposed to be about the Father's business. We have to build this kingdom until he returns. You know, there's a reoccurring theme throughout Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's that he always moves past the letter of the law to your neighbor and say, letter of the law. He moves past the letter of the law and takes us right to the spirit of the law. And make no mistake, the spirit of the law is much more impossible to follow than even the letter of the law was. If you were here last week, you know that the Beatitudes Jesus taught us were, were, were just like this. They They were so impossible to follow that that no one would be able to live up to them. We see the same kind of thing right away here in verse 21 as we continue in our study. Matthew 5, 21 through 22. You have heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. 
If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. That seems pretty easy to take in, doesn't it? But I say, this is where Jesus drops the bomb here. If you are even angry with someone, you are subject to that judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. These words of Jesus are not easy words. He says, you all know it's wrong to murder, but I'm here to tell you that if you are even angry with somebody, someone, angry enough to insult them or call them an idiot or go as far as cursing them, you have already committed murder in your heart and you are in dangers of the fires of hell. Whoa. Can I just say this for everybody in here and everybody listening online and for anybody who stumbles across our YouTube channel and watches this sermon? Hell is real. It's not something that was invented by church leaders to scare people into the church. It's as real as heaven. People will go there. The road to destruction is broad. The road to life and life everlasting in heaven is narrow. Hell's a real place. Make no mistake. Again, Jesus sticks to the same theme as the Beatitudes. There's, there's no way any of us can say that we are innocent of murder if you define murder in the way that Jesus did. We have all committed it according to these words. Would you agree with me? Well, that's hard, isn't it? We're murderers? Jesus said if we're even angry with someone, enough to be out of control and our mouth begins to speak like, you idiot, or we curse them, we're in danger of the same judgment. We have to remember that that these were Jews Jesus was talking to. They had been trying to follow the law for thousands of years. And when they messed up, they could make sacrifices to cover their sin guilt and get back in right standing with God. Jesus here, in his first sermon publicly, he, he begins to take the law to the next level. That's what he's doing here. And there's a bit of shock and awe in his words. There's a shock and awe thing going on here with what Jesus was saying. I mean, don't murder. It seems easy enough. Most of us have never committed the act of murder and probably never will. But Jesus basically was saying that we all have committed murder because we have all been angry enough to call someone an idiot or curse them. Well, I haven't. You, you probably did on the way here when you were behind some slowpoke. That's how often it happens in our lives. That's how quickly we go to those places. And if we've committed murder, then we are subject to the judgment of that sin, which again, and I I keep saying it, is hellfire. There is an arrogance that takes root within us when we start believing that we can somehow live up to God's standard, to live up to his law. 
We get arrogant about that. This is what happened to the Israelites. For generations, they had been working at following the letter of the law, and when they were successful at it, their hearts filled with pride. I have followed every letter of the law. I have done all that, that the law of Moses, that, that God gave to Moses. I followed it all. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were very good at being full of pride in their ability to follow the law. And we do the same thing today. Our hearts fill up with pride, not because we follow the law so perfectly like the Israelites did. No, we get puffed up when we look around us and see that there are so much, we are so much better than the people around us. All too often, the standard that we set for ourselves is based off the behavior and habits of others and not off the standard that is laid out in the word of God. We don't sin like other people, we know, so we must be in a better standing with Christ. Good for us. Why do you, or, or why do you think, or why do we instantly go to a place in our minds where our good deeds are put on this side, this side of the scale, and our bad deeds are put on the other side of it, and then we wait for the weighing out to begin, and we hope that the scale tips in our favor, that God will grant us entrance into heaven. Why do we do that? And we all do it. But that's not how it works, church. It's not a scale thing. Well, I have done more good than evil, so I will go to heaven. No, it's not about that. And by the way, if you are honest, there is not one person who's hearing my voice this morning or who will hear it at some point that has more good than bad. Because it's not just ju judging your actions, it's judging your thoughts, those little things you say under your breath, the matters of your heart. And if we're honest with ourselves, we'll be a little like Isaiah was when he was found himself in the presence of God in a vision. He said, I'm ruined. He was a prophet of God, and he said, I'm ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. He saw his sin, and he, and, he, and he was set up next to the holiness of God, and there was no comparison. And church, I don't care who you are, how good you are, how nice you are, how wonderful you are. Your goodness does not stack up to the holiness of God. The Bible calls it filthy rags. That's why Jesus spoke here with some shock and awe. He had to blow up their stinking thinking. No matter how good they were at keeping the law, they would never have the ability to live up to it on their own. And we can't either. I read this last week and I'll read it again now. It's the words immediately following the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 through 29, he said, and when, he didn't say this, but when, when, uh, after he was done speaking, it says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. They were astonished, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. They felt the weight of his words. They heard them. They're like, whoa, that's some serious stuff coming our way. It is always our human tendency to try and somehow be good enough to earn our way into God's good graces. The Israelites tried to follow, uh, tried uh, through following all the rules, and they failed. We try by justifying our sin, by pointing out everybody else's. And I know we do this, don't we? We think we're going to make it because our neighbor is worse than us. Folks, I see it all the time. We don't say that. We don't come out and or we're not honest about that, but we think it. 
Even if it's way deep down in here, I, I'll, I'll tell you how easily it can come out. When I was in college um, in Brookings, South Dakota, there was this place in the road. It was, it was, it was, we called it the viaduct. Pastor Jared, you remember the viaduct? It was the train bridge came over and the road went way down underneath. It was, so, it was a place in town where you could get, when the train was coming through, you could get past. But it wasn't in a very busy place. It wasn't on a busy road. And so it was kind of a, in a weird spot. No, nobody really used it for that purpose so much. So it just sat there. And when it rained, all the water in town, it seemed like, went to that spot. And it filled up. One night, it was raining so hard that it actually filled up and it was almost to the bottom of the train bridge. It was just full. I mean, there was a few feet, but it was full. So my roommate in college, I wasn't in ministry then, so don't throw the book at me here, okay? My roommate in college and I, I had, I had this little rubber raft that I had won at a, at a prom a couple of years previous. Do you, do you remember when we did prom nights and you win prizes and stuff like that? They still do that? Okay, good. Well, I won this little Pepsi rubber raft. It was a two-man raft. Had little plastic oars. So my roommate and I were like, yeah, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna paddle across the viaduct, right? In the middle of the night, it was just pouring rain. So we get in there and we start paddling and you know, we're a couple of heavyweights and so it's starting to sink a little bit. Um, he was a little more heavier weight than I was back then, but I've got him beat now. Um, actually not, I'm starting to lose some, so maybe we're even. But anyway, we were paddling, paddling, paddling and we're getting through and all of a sudden these kids are on the train bridge, diving off the train bridge into the water. I'm like, that's crazy, you know? That water's filthy dirty. And the cops show up. And they start shining their lights, and they shine them right at me. And by this time, I had, we had paddled across. My roommate, I dropped him off, and so I was paddling back across alone, thinking I could do it a lot faster. The cop shines his, his, uh, his flashlight in my eyes from the, from the bank of this river or this pond that we were in. And he goes, he goes, hey. And I said, I don't think those kids should be jumping off that bridge. <laughs> it just came out. And he goes, I don't think anybody should be in there at all. And besides that, I, he goes, so get out of there. And so I got out of there, and the cops had all come over there, and they, they pulled me aside, and then they shone, shined a light in my face, and they said, you got registration for that boat? <laughs> and I was like, no, I... I don't want to be in trouble. I mean, I, I'm a Christian by this time, but I was just having some fun. You know, I don't want to be in big trouble or anything like that. And then they just, the, the three cops that were there just busted out laughing because they, they knew that they had gotten my goat a little bit and they knew I would never go around that, that viaduct again when there was water. Big overgrown kids. But it was so interesting. The first thing out of my mouth was to blame somebody else. When I was in fault. We do that. We do that when it comes to justifying our own sins. We point the finger and say, look at them. You know, when you're standing before God someday, that's not an option. Well, look at them. No, we're looking at you. Right? At you. And that's what it comes down to pointing out everyone else's faults, even if it's just within our minds. It might make you feel better inside, but it's not the answer. 
So, so let's just say aloud and clear, your ability to behave in a manner that is holy and pleasing to God, your ability to behave in a manner that is holy and pleasing to God will in and of itself never be enough to meet the perfect standard of Christ. You cannot do it no matter how good you are. Self-efforts will eventually lead to legalism. Legalism will turn into religiosity. Religiosity will end in death. It's the way it works. But here's the good news. God's grace leads to love. Love leads to a relationship with Jesus. Relationship with Jesus leads to life and life everlasting. And just as an exercise this morning, when was the last time, because it's the subject at hand, were you angry? Angry enough to explode on social media. Angry enough to curse someone out when they cut you off in traffic or won't get out of your way. Angry enough to insult a coworker or your boss under your breath. Angry enough at a certain family member to call them stupid when discussing them with someone else. Angry, red-headed Irish anger with a side of German study, stubbornness to go with it. Yep, I've been there a few times. If you've heard me preach for a while, you probably know that it's a sin bent of mine, this anger thing. I have to fight it every single day. So I stand before you here this morning and I confess to you that I am guilty of, in the matter that Jesus defines, guilty of murder. That was a hard thing this week for me to swallow, especially as I prepared for a funeral of someone who was physically murdered. And I thought about that person, how senseless it was for them to commit such an act of violence. I thought about that person, what is wrong with them? And I'm guilty of the same thing. Bobby Munoz is a good guy. He lets me pick on him. And I, he told me a story and I asked for his permission if I could share it and he says, you bet. So Bobby was in the convenience store, and some of you know he, he uh, works uh, as a beer salesman. He stocks coolers, sells it to, to uh, grocery stores. He's supplies. He's the, the middle guy who does that. And he was stocking a, a store. It was a gas station, I think, or a grocery store, one of the two. He was stocking it up, and it was a holiday weekend, and so he was really busy. And he had a lot to do. He wanted to get home, and on holiday weekends, we know that there's more of those types of beverages bought and drank, right? So he was extra busy. And he was, he was uh, waiting for this customer who was standing in the way of him being able to, to stock. And, and he was just standing there. And, he, and in Bobby's way, you know, Bobby's such a, a congenial person and energetic. He goes, hey, can I help you uh, find something? You know, in other words, I, I need to get on with my job and, and get you moving. He says, can I help you find something? And the man just ignored him. Well, Bobby's like, I want to get home to my family. I want to do this. I want to do that. And this guy's in my way. He's, the guy just continued to ignore him, and he was like, forget you. You know, might have been some other adjectives in there. <laughs> Stinking people. And then he, the guy left, and Bobby started doing his job, and then 
the store, uh, someone who worked in the store brought this, uh, brought this individual back, and he said, could, Bobby, could you, could you help him find this? He's looking for this particular product. And, and, uh, and, the, and the worker said, because this man is deaf. And Bobby's like, oh, right, buddy? <laughs> I am so horrible. <laughs> Going off at the mouth for no reason at all. And, you know, we can pick on Bobby because every one of us can look in the mirror and, and know that we've done the same kind of thing. I can pick on Corby, too, a little bit. She gave me permission. She's not Hispanic, but, um, you know, Bobby's our Mexican, right? He's not a Mexicant. Um, those are his words, by the way. Uh, Corby's not Hispanic, but she's still Bobby's spicy senorita, right? And she can relate to this. She told me that when she got saved, she had to tape both of her middle fingers down while she was driving. <laughs> it's better than sinning, Corby. Bobby said she's a double burger. You cut her off. And we could say, oh, that's terrible, Corby. We're just like it. Maybe it doesn't play out that way, but it plays out in a different way, possibly. She doesn't have to tape her fingers down no more. She's full of God now. I just know we all can relate. We've all been there. So my question is this. Who is able to avoid the hellfires that Jesus says is the judgment for those who get that angry? No one. Except those who let the righteousness of Christ become their righteousness. And this only happens when you receive him into your heart, give him the controls, and allow him to change you from the inside out every single day. That's called being born again, by the way. The evidence of salvation is a changed life. It's not because you said a salvation prayer. That's great if you do. That's the start of something. But you have to follow through with the decision to serve Christ every single day. Every single moment in your car when you're in traffic. Every single time you're with family that just rub you the wrong way. The big C church, which is the church at large, the church of Jesus Christ, they can say we are saved by grace all we want, but most of the time our behaviors scream, clean yourself up and come to Jesus. Or we revel in the fact that we are moral people, much more suited for the kingdom of heaven than those sinners out there. And again, we're all guilty. That's my point. When you become born again, when you quit the religiosity and self-effort and enter into the love relationship that Christ wants to have with you, your life will reflect his holiness. I am so, so tired of the church being crippled because they're so legalistic in their approach that you have to be holy in a hurry. It takes time to be holy. At the same time, if you're someone who, who isn't passionately pursuing God and his holiness and you're taking too much time, let's get with the program. But those two sides of it, they collide and this church gets legalistic and this church gets too, too free to do whatever they want. And there's no balance. Church, if, if you have Jesus Christ at the center of your life, holiness is the fruit you, it will just flow out of you. 
I hope I'm communicating that as well as I can. I have to tell you, I'm personally convicted by the words of Jesus in regards to anger that, that in my time that I spent with him because of our relationship, I repented this week. Then when I was driving down the road yesterday, temptation came charging in, like it does. Some guy stopped in the middle of the road to look at what was going on at the farmer's market. And I came to a stop behind him. I didn't have to slam on the brakes. I was watching what I was doing, which my wife probably doesn't believe because I'm usually not. But I came to a stop behind him and just waited. I'm like, what's this guy doing? And I could see him. He's just looking. What's he doing? Then the anger started down here. And then my mouth began to speak. And I said, come on, out loud. I said this in the car all by myself. Get out of the way, you. And because I had spent time with God, guess what happened? What normally would come out of my mouth didn't come out of my mouth. Get out of my way, you awesome, fearfully, and wonderfully made human being that was created in the image of God. I'm not lying. That really happened yesterday. Because I didn't want to be guilty of murder. But I'm telling you, that would not have come out of my mouth if I, that, that, that nice words wouldn't have come out of my mouth if I hadn't spent time with Jesus. The old me would just come pouring out. Personal willpower did not give me the victory in that moment. My relationship with Christ did. Spending time with him resulted in behavior that was better I wasn't better because of me. I was better because of him. He's got my back. I can, and and, and even when I do mess up in the future, because of that ongoing relationship I have with him, I confess my sins with true sorrow and repentance, and he's faithful and just to forgive me of them. He's got our back. They're thrown into the sea of forgetfulness and removed from me as far as the east is from the west. That's what's so awesome about God's love, about his forgiveness, about his grace. When our heart's right, we're pure. Not because of what we did, but because of what he did. Let me make this statement, and you can write this down or take a picture of it on on the wall here. The holiness that's displayed in your life is the fruit of the intimacy you have in your relationship with Christ. If holiness is not the fruit, you have an intimacy problem. You need to become more intimate with Jesus in relationship. You need to spend more time with him. Jesus' words shocked those who heard them, and they should shock us today. But they should shock us into the reality that if we are missing the mark, and we all are, by the way, then we need to check our relationship with him. And specifically, Jesus brings up, again, anger here. What do we do with it? Your intimate times with Christ are the moments in which you can give that anger to him. That's what you do in those moments, in his presence. God, take away this anger. You know, Jesus understands it. He understands anger. He he has felt it. So he can absolutely handle it. Let me say it this way. Personally, if I start getting angry and going off at the mouth, my Christian family, that's all of you, you have permission to give me a loving nudge and say, P.B., 
I think you need to spend a little more time with Jesus. I'm willing to say that. Are you willing to say that? You may want to give him some of that rage, BB. Just saying. Melissa, you don't have to call me PB. You can just say Barry. Okay, just... Anna, you don't have to call me PB either. Ben, you have to. So just, just saying. And one more thing in reference to anger. We are all going to feel it at times, but will you keep hanging on to it until it boils over out of your mouth or you physically go into a rage? That's when it becomes sin. When the anger takes over and you are no longer in control, that's when you begin to fit Jesus' shock and awe definition of murder. Jesus felt angry. The feeling is not sin. You understand that, right? I think there was a little anger in Jesus when he was throwing tables, but he was in control. He didn't sin. Jesus goes on then in this portion of Scripture. Again, this has been shocking. All. Like, everyone's like, we're all guilty of murder. Matthew 5, 23 through 26 says this. He says, so if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, Leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. When you are on the way to court with your adversary, settle your differences quickly. Otherwise, your accuser may hand you over to the judge who will hand you over to the officer and you will be thrown into prison. And if that happens, you surely won't be free again until you have paid the last penny. You know, I've heard this scripture quote, misquoted so many times through the years. People always say, if you have ought against your brother, you should go to them and get things worked out. That's not what we just read. It says that if you know your brother has ought against you, then you should go to him. You should go to him. It's a whole new level of difficult, isn't it? But before we jump into what that means and how that looks, let's make sure we all know what the word ought means. Someone having ought against you means that they have a legitimate beef with you. That you have, in reality, done them wrong. It's not that they merely think you did them wrong, okay? That's important to understand. Jesus was warning us that if we have actually harmed or wronged someone, then we should make it right with that person before we worship God. I wonder if there's dead churches that are meeting this morning. I mean, the presence of God's just not there. People don't enter into worship like they should. How many have ever gone to a service like that? I wonder if, if there's churches like that because they know they've done people wrong and they've done nothing to fix it. They've not gone to, gone to that person and resolved it. And understand here that, that Jesus was not saying that we have to try to make people like us. How many know there's going to be people who don't like you? The three of you know that. The other is going to be clued in pretty soon, I think. I don't know. There will always be people who falsely accuse us or just plain have a problem with you. He said that we're not to offer our gifts to God if our brother has ought against us. Clearly a person cannot have ought against you unless you have actually done wrong to them because the definition of the word ought means there's a legitimate wrong that's been done. People can claim they have ought against you. They can believe or think they have ought against you, but it's not ought unless you've really done them wrong. 
Jesus wasn't trying to enslave us to people who have bad attitudes towards us, all right? Just making that clear. He didn't tell you to stop worshiping God just because someone doesn't like you or because someone makes an accusation against you. He just says here that we are to put our sacrifice of worship on hold when he brings an ought that we have legitimately committed against someone to our attention. We need to do something about it. And this is hard. But it says loud and clear that you cannot just do whatever you want, whenever you want. We have responsibilities to one another that are very serious responsibilities. To cheat one another, to slander one another, to humiliate one another, or even just lead someone astray with our own behaviors. These things disqualify you from being able to worship according to Jesus. They disqualify you. Well, I have the right to worship God. I love him. He says, don't worship me if you're not going to take care of business. Folks, this is hard like it is, like anger is hard. We're all guilty. He says, go make things right with that brother or sister. Make sure that your heart is clean and pure before you offer your worship to a holy God. And again, how, how will you know if someone else has a legitimate beef with you? You spend time in God's presence. It's in those intimate, personal times that you have with Jesus that he will speak to your heart and nudge you. You wrong that person. Go to him or her and apologize. Church, there's freedom when we do that. I've gone to people and said, you know, I know, I feel that you're very upset with me. What can I do to fix it? And sometimes there might be legitimate reasons why they're upset with me, and sometimes there hasn't been. I uh, have lived through a few types of these things in my life. When I was in South Dakota, there was a man who had led worship in the church for years, and I was fairly new to the church. I was working with the youth, but I wasn't on staff or anything. I had played the piano off and on as the church needed me to, and, and I was scheduled. But, but then one day he approached me and he asked me to cover him for the next three months while he was out of town for work. He was asking me to lead worship there for the next three months. And I agreed, and I excitedly started planning. He wasn't very big on music, like to have chords in front of you or words in front of you. He basically would write a list of songs down, tell you what key he wanted them in, and then you as a piano player just had to be able to play in those keys. And it made it a little difficult, especially for me. I, I like having music in front of me. I... It's a crutch. I like it. <laughs> it. Makes it easier for me to worship when I don't have to think about what chord I'm going to play next. So I started scheduling practices. We didn't have those either. I put a worship book together of chord charts. We didn't have one of those. And we had good worship. I thought it was getting better. I was adding to it. And then he came back after three months, and I was excited to share the progress I had made with the team. He wasn't so excited. In his mind, I had taken authority away from him and made decisions about the worship team that he was in charge of that I had no business making. He was angry with me, and he forfeited his position as the worship leader out of anger. I was then given the responsibility of leading worship. Who was right? Who was wrong? Did I legitimately wrong him? Or was he just mad because I made some improvements? Let me say that in this scenario, I was wrong to take liberties and changes without consulting him first. I didn't come underneath him as the leader, as the authority. 
I was young and I had the right heart in making the changes. I wasn't trying to do anything evil, but it was wrong for me to do it because it made him look bad to the others on the team and to the church people when worship was better because we actually practiced. And, and I, I, I just need to pause here because Pastor Jared was in the church at that time up there. Was it better? He's like, yeah. It was. Practice makes things better, doesn't it? It was probably equally wrong of him to be so sensitive about his position. It wasn't a paid position or anything, but there may have been a, a tinge of jealousy in regards to the corded music that I was, could easily put together and he couldn't. And the practices that I held built a little camaraderie in the team and, you know, it, it, he just could have got a little jealous. And, and just the fact that it went so good without him there, I think that, that probably made him a little angry. Incidentally, we're friends today. Because several months after he told me what a rotten thing I had done, we got together and hashed it out. I apologized for overstepping my authority, and he apologized for having those jealous feelings. But I hated the awkwardness before we finally got together. Church, these things happen all the time in the body of Christ. And most of the time, we just walk away, and we don't go and fix the things that we know we did were wrong. It's important that we spend enough time in the presence of God and let him speak those things to us. To speak those things to us so that we can respond and be obedient to those things he's telling us to do. They happen in families too, church. All we can do is continually check our hearts and make sure that we've done everything uh, we can and that we've done nothing legitimate to wrong our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Lord, again, he'll speak to you about those things if you give him the time and you'll listen to him. For the Jews, this was especially hard to hear. Jesus was saying that they should forfeit their right to bring sacrifices before the Lord until they had resolved the wrong they had done towards one another. This would have caused people to talk. I mean, to not be part of the ceremonies of sacrificial worship, they would have to answer people's questions of why they weren't participating. This could be embarrassing for them. For us, it it's, it's really gets down to putting one another's needs above our own, caring about everyone else first. When we do this, there will be a far less chance of somebody having ought, real legitimate feelings of hurt because of something that you've done or how you've wronged someone. It's no coincidence either that Jesus talks about this ought thing right after he talks about anger and how it can lead to murder. Anger is what's produced in people whom we legitimately wrong. The answer is more time spent with, with Jesus. So whether you have anger brewing because someone's committed ought against you, or if you have committed ought, that's legitimately wrong someone, and you've produced anger in them, both are wrong. And you have to do what you have to do to get that fixed. Spend time with Jesus. Get it before him. Go to that person that you've legitimately wronged. Get it made right as best you can. What if you, what if you go to that person and you, and that you've legitimately wronged and you say, hey, look, I am so sorry, and they don't want nothing to do with you? Well, you've done your part at that point. You've done, your, you've done what you're called to do. 
If you have an anger problem or if you have a problem continually producing anger in others that you've wronged, you need to spend more time with Jesus. Guys, life's too short to hold on to anger, to let it just sit there and boil and fester until it just blows out. Forgive whatever is eating you up inside. Whatever has become the source of anger within you, forgive that. Do what you have to. I know our, our program, Ultimate Journey, sometimes deals with these very things, probably more times than not. Something that was legitimately done to them produced anger. But you know, you just got to forgive that stuff, even if that person doesn't come to you. And for the love of God, don't keep causing anger within those around you by wronging people, stepping on them, pushing them aside, treating them poorly, insulting them, treating them like they're worthless. Don't do that. Ephesians 4, 26 through 27. I think it's a great verse to close with, and I'm, I am closing, and it's 11:29, or maybe just a little couple minutes before. I did good. It says, and don't sin by letting anger control you. Some versions say, be angry and sin not. This one says, and don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. You want a bad night of sleep? Go to bed mad. I mean, there's been times when I've had to look at Alyssa after we've laid there for a while and just say, I'm not mad at you anymore because you legitimately wronged me. <laughs> you're laughing because you think it's always my fault. I mean, I know what you're laughing about. And you're right, it usually is. <laughs> She's so sweet, she would never hurt anybody. Yeah, you don't know. I just want a safe place to go home to. That's what I want. I'm totally kidding. Everyone's like, I'm going to shut my mouth right now. Would you bow your heads? God, when we talk about the spirit of the law, we're all guilty. We're so guilty. There's not one of us who can be good enough not one of us, not one of us who can overcome and God, every single one of us, by your definition, has committed murder. As hard as that is to hear, as hard as that is to say. Lord, we want to spend more time with you. We don't want to be angry. We don't want our mouths to become like open graves, spitting out poison all the time. God, we just want you. We want to be a reflection of you to everyone we come in contact with. We want to leave people better than when we found them, not worse. With everybody's heads bowed and eyes closed, if you've just struggled with anger, if that's been one of your Sin tendencies, we all have them. This one might not be yours, but it might be. 
If you've struggled with anger a little, a little more than you should, would you just raise your hand and say, yeah, that's me. And I need to get it under the blood. Hands up all over. The feeling of anger is not sin. Holding on to it, harboring it, letting it brew and, 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 and fester until it just boils over, that's sin. God, we give you. If that's you, lift both hands up. Just say, God, we give you. We give you our sin. We give you that anger, God, right now. Replace it with your presence. Replace it with your peace. Calm the storm within us, O oh God. Give us victory, as we sang about earlier today, over this. And Lord, as those feelings come up, let us take them into your presence and leave them at the foot of the cross. God, we ask forgiveness for being murderers at times. We ask forgiveness for legitimately wronging people. And God, we ask you to change us from the inside out. Once again, Lord, be our Savior, be our Lord. We give you our hearts. Change us from the inside out, Lord Jesus. We want to be pure vessels that you can flow through. We want to be that reflection, again, that reflection of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being a part of the Indianola First podcast. Join us next week to stay updated on our latest messages.